Uh, I need to brag just a little bit. I competed in the ski to sea in the cross country leg. And out of 500 teams, I finished 491st. <laughs> I was thinking I was going to finish last, so that puts me like nine places above where I was hoping. <laughs> so there's a really important principle in mountain biking, and it's this. Do not look where you don't want to go. So if there's a cliff right here, you want to look over here, because if you look over there, you're going to steer into that cliff. And one time I was up at Galbraith Mountain, there's great mountain biking up there, and there's a, a, a really sharp turn, and if you don't make the turn, there's this blackberry patch with stickers, and it's pretty nasty. And I'm coming up to this turn, and I know that it's there, and I'm looking at the blackberries. <laughs> and instead of making the turn, I head straight there, I slam on my brakes, I go over the handlebars, into the blackberries. <laughs> well, a few months ago, Pastor Todd asked if I wanted to preach in the Sermon on the Mount series, and I said, absolutely, so I'm flipping through and I'm just reading, and I come across two verses I do not want to preach on, and I'm staring at those two verses there's, there's 111 verses in the whole sermon, and I don't want to go to these two. A few weeks later, when the assignments go out to the pastors, with no intention, Todd claims, <laughs> I get assigned the passage on divorce. And I'm a divorced guy. And I didn't want to go here. But I was looking at them. <laughs> and I steered right into it. Because I came to the stage today with, with a little bit of kicking and screaming and a little bit of tantrum inside my head. But I know this is so important. And this message is so important for right now. So I'm convinced either Todd or the Lord has a fantastic sense of humor. <laughs> Possibly both. But before we, we get in and read the passage, it's really important just to give a reminder of the, the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Because it's the context of the kingdom that we have to read the individual parts. And, and if you're not understanding the context as you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of like eating raw chicken. Right? Like there's some nutritional value that you're getting out of there but you're not doing it right. <laughs> Cook the thing first. And as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we need to keep in mind the context of the kingdom. And Jesus' entire message is that the kingdom of God is open and available to royally broken people. And God's kingdom is, is the restoration of everything that's broken. And I'm talking broken bodies and broken minds and broken souls and broken hearts and broken relationships. There's broken allegiance. There's broken worship. The entire created natural order is broken. And we aren't just slightly broken. We aren't just bent. We're royally broken. 
in the sermon, Jesus sees and he, he preaches, love your enemies, and this is how broken we are. Sometimes we have a hard time loving the people that we love. It shows the desperate need for the rule and the reign of Jesus in our life. So let's be really clear. I'm a broken pastor. I'm looking out in a room chock full of broken people. And the ones that don't think that they're broken are the most broken of all. Let's look a little bit more at the context of the kingdom before we read our passage. And the first message that that Pastor Todd preached, he gave the opening statement, the very first public words of Jesus. First things he said publicly, he said this, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then right before he preaches the sermon on the, on the mount, he's, he's healing people. He's giving sight to the blind, hearing to deaf people. And then during the sermon on the mount, he's He's restoring broken minds and souls and spirits and relationships. And then after the Sermon on the Mount, he's healing again. He touches a leper is the first thing that he does after the Sermon on the Mount. And then he heals somebody who was possessed by a demon. And then he heals a paralytic. And then he calls a tax collector to be a disciple. And this whole thing is the frame And the context for the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the kingdom of God is open to royally broken people. So there's two main passages, actually, that we're going to look at today. The first one is about divorce. The second one is about oaths. But we're going to look at the first one on divorce. And if you have a Bible or an app, would you turn and and get to Matthew chapter 5? And if you don't have either of those, it's going to be up on the screen. And in verse 31, Jesus says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And everyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And at the time, there was two competing schools of thought about divorce, led by two prominent rabbis. And the first was Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel said a husband could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. Like a poorly cooked meal, or a sidelong glance, or like changing the channel during the football game. Those were all grounds for divorce, no matter how little or small. Rabbi Shammai was the other competing school of thought on divorce. He said there had to be a major offense or a major sin in the marriage for divorce to occur. But then in that case, it was required. So if there was a major offense, you had to divorce. And Jesus is coming in, and his teaching on divorce, it it undermines both Rabbi Hillel and that he says, It should only be for a major offense. And he's undermining Rabbi Shammai and saying it's not required. But in Jesus' day, divorce was very easy and it was common, like it is today. It was wildly accepted and practiced. And Jesus' teaching on this is trying to undermine 
what was common in the culture. And Jesus sets a standard for marriage and divorce that's really simple. And this is the standard for marriage. Don't separate what God joins together. And, and yes, he gives exceptions. And no, he wouldn't argue that you have to stay in an abusive relationship. But, but his standard is keep together what God joins. The passage in Matthew later on, Matthew 19, and, and this is where he really develops and reinforces this. And Jesus says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. He's setting the standard high, and he's even referring back to the very garden, to the, to the beginning of it all, to the created order. And it really it kind of makes sense on another level too, right? Like, for example, you don't superglue something together that you don't want to always stick together. And I found this out when I was a kid, and I found a little bottle of superglue, and I was just wondering how super this thing is, so I took a drop and I put it on my finger, and I went like that. <laughs> and it's super. And it was like, ah! And it was painful when I ripped it. So you don't super glue stuff that you don't mean to stay together. And when you join in marriage, that's meant to be a permanent bond. So Jesus not only sets a standard for our marriage, but, but the next passage we're going to look at in the Sermon on the Mount, he's setting a standard for our mouth. And the standard for our mouth is this, speak simple truth. This is in his teaching on oaths, he's combating a culture of lies and half-truths became very common, especially among religious people, to make promises and oaths and like break them at the drop of a hat. Business deals, family promises, neighborhood covenants, they're routinely broken. So the next part in our Sermon on the Mount passage is, is Matthew 5.33, and if you have it there, take a look. Jesus says, again you have heard it said, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Fantastic. <laughs> this is good stuff. It's like rock in the house. This is good. So listen, okay? This is how good it is. <laughs> That was cool. I'm going to see if they can do that in the next services. <laughs> and Jesus continues, Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. And religious leaders in the day, especially, they love to give themselves lots of wiggle room in their promises when Jesus was teaching this. As long as they didn't swear by God himself using his name, they didn't consider their oaths binding. 
So it would be like this. If you swore by your head, that's kind of a big deal, but nobody's really going to expect you to keep that. If you swore by Jerusalem, that was a bigger deal, but still, you know, you could get out of that one fairly easily. If you swore by the earth, that's a pretty, pretty big promise. But if you had a really good reason, you could get out. If you swore by heaven, that was like double dog dare. That was serious. But if you really, 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 really need to break, it's cool. It's still not a sin. Unless you use the name of God himself, you weren't sinning and breaking any of your oaths. Kind of sounds like kindergarten stuff, right? Like... <laughs> Uh, there's Johnny, and Johnny's like, hey, I'll give you my sandwich if you could take this ball and throw it over Mr. McCracken's house. And little Jimmy's like, do you promise? And Johnny's like, yeah, I promise. And then Jimmy's like, do you pinky swear? And Jesus is just saying, don't do that. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. But doesn't this same thing, doesn't it also contribute to our culture of divorce because the marriage oath and covenant has become almost meaningless in some places. So you might hear one thing, but is this really what they're saying? Do you swear to take this man until his nose hair starts to really bug you? Do you swear to take this woman until her scrapbooking supplies overflows into your hunting closet? <laughs> Jesus isn't just taking, he, he doesn't conform to the cultural norms. He's not content by allowing the prevailing attitudes of the day to exist. He's establishing his kingdom. And that's contrary to the culture. Right now, there's two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of the world. It's a kingdom of light, and it's a kingdom of darkness. And these are in conflict, and there's actually no middle ground at all, and there's, there's no dual citizenship. So when I was a kid, my brother and I, we used to love playing Legos, and it was kind of like we were building our own kingdom. So I'd make like my buildings and my spaceships and my cars, and my brother would make his building and spaceship and his cars, and then when his stuff was unguarded, all of a sudden I'd become like Godzilla in Tokyo, <laughs> and like I just would just just destroy it. And then if my stuff got unguarded, he'd come over and he'd bash it and, and our Lego kingdoms were in conflict. And the kingdoms of light are in conflict with the kingdoms of darkness. But here's the thing. We know who wins. It's not a fair fight. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of Jesus. And all of the work of Jesus right now is to get citizens from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And I want to know if you're over here, the invitation is for you today to join the kingdom of light. Jesus is countering cultural norms to establish the kingdom of God. But eventually, 
the entire kingdom of this world is going to be dismantled. And that's everything that Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's taken an axe to the pillars of the kingdom of this world. The thing that says anger is fine, lust is fine, divorce is fine, lying is fine. Sue in courts to your heart's content. Hate your enemies. And Jesus is saying no. He's undermining it. And that's why he's saying quite a bit, you've heard it said X, but I say to you Y. That's what he's doing. He's undermining the kingdom of this world. But why is Jesus setting the standard so high for divorce? I want to focus on this bit now. The thing is, divorce is painful. And I know this really well. Last month or so, I encountered five people who came up to me and some very close to me going through it. And it refreshed again the pain of divorce. In some mysterious way, when God makes man and woman married, they become one flesh. And so that divorce is a tearing of that. And it's painful. When I was a kid, I, I, I wanted to catch this lizard. I had it cornered. <laughs> and I grabbed it. And its tail come off. And it came off and went, bunk. <laughs> and I, it freaked me out. I was like, I just pulled this lizard's tail off. And then I learned it's actually a defense mechanism from Predator. It's designed to come off. But that's not it for husband and wife. When they become one flesh, they're not designed to just pop off. Bunk! They're one flesh, and that separation is a tearing, and it's probably closer to conjoined twins being torn. It's painful. And the years following my divorce were some of the most painful of my life. If you have kids, you have to go to a court-mandated parenting class. And, and I went to, up to St. Joe's and their little education center in the room up there. And I was thinking there'd maybe be a handful or maybe a dozen people. And I come into this large room and there's over a hundred people there. And think of the lives that those hundred people represent. And it's not just them. It's the kids and it's the family, and it's the friends. It's painful. Remember, small things were painful for me. Going to the grocery store and, and just carrying a, a sense of shame and even an anxiety that I'm going to run into somebody that I know, and they're going to ask this question, how's it going? It's painful. And there's ripple effects, and then the ripple effects have ripple effects. And, and I'm just curious, would you raise your hand if, if somehow the ripple effects of divorce have come into your life? That's a lot of pain, and you know. But here's the thing, the pain from marital divorce is small 
compared to the pain of the divorce, which is man's separation from God. And marital divorce is small d, but man's se- or humankind's separation from God is big D divorce. And all of the evils from all human history, from all people, that comes from man's divorce or separation from God's rule and reign. It's the the divorce or the separation of the creator from the created. There's the sending away from subjects of the kingdom into a kingdom of darkness. And and that's a greater pain. And that's the greater divorce. We don't actually know if any of Jesus' 12 disciples were, were maritally divorced. But we know that every single one of his disciples, at some point in their life, had been divorced and separated from God. It's actually a condition that's much worse than a marital divorce. But here's the big idea. That there's a call that Jesus wants divorced disciples Because the kingdom of God is open and available to royally broken people. Jesus wants divorced disciples. Small d and capital D. So I asked the question as I was doing sermon preparation. Would he, like if he was here today and he was calling disciples to him, would he call somebody who had been divorced? I want to answer the question by looking at three kind of like scoundrels who he did call. This is going to help answer the question. Let's look first at Matthew. Matthew was the writer of the gospel that we're studying right now. His former name was Levi. He was a tax collector. And that meant that he was Jewish and he betrayed his fellow Jews by being employed by the Roman government, their oppressors, to collect taxes. This is a dude with a lot of strikes against him. Like, worst of the worst in their society. It's interesting, Matthew's tax booth was very near Jesus' hometown. So it's possible that Matthew was the tax collector for Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents. It's very likely that Jesus knew Matthew by reputation as a guy who's like corrupt Maybe he had family and friends who were bullied and harassed or thrown into jail by Matthew. So when Jesus picks him to be one of his very closest followers and friends, I'm imagining this is like a scandal. Like a howl of protest going out from his community. That's that's a big deal. So I want to put that in today's context if Jesus was calling disciples today and he was physically present today today matthew the tax collector might be corporate con artist bernie madoff today matthew the tax collector might be an enron executive who's spending time in a federal pen today matthew the tax collector might even be an irs tax collector (laughs) <laughs> it's 
sorry if you work for the IRS. I love you. <laughs> but Jesus' pick of Matthew to be a disciple alienated the entire Jewish community who thought that Matthew had betrayed them. Second, let's look at a guy called Simon the Zealot. He was a rebel against the Roman government. He led an insurrection, or was at least part of an insurrection, and Jesus' pick of Simon the Zealot would have alienated everybody who was an upstanding Roman citizen and would have alienated the whole Roman authority. So today, Simon the Zealot would be like Oscar the Occupy Wall Street protester. Can you picture it? Third, let's look at... Uh, at Saul, a guy called Saul. He was a persecutor of the church and at least complicit in murder of Christians, possibly a murderer himself. He alienated the followers of Jesus, the early church. And today, Saul or the Apostle Paul might be like Fred Phelps, Westboro Baptist Church the religious fanatic, and Saul was a religious fanatic to the point of, of, of killing people or throwing people in jail. And, and you go to the Westboro Baptist homepage and it says this, thank God for 11 more dead troops. We're praying for 11,000 more. And the revulsion and the hatred that you feel when I say that is the revulsion that the early church felt when Jesus taps Saul to be a disciple. I think the answer is yes, would Jesus call a divorced disciple today? Because as I rattle off like the names of these modern scoundrels, like we need to realize that we're all in the same boat. We're all equally, at some part of our lives, equally divorced and separated from God until we reunite with God through Jesus. Even the Greek word divorce, it means, it means separate to send away from or to leave one another. And, and Jesus, when he's giving his Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to an entire crowd of people who'd been divorced because all humanity has been sent away or divorced or separated from the Creator by our sin. When Adam and Eve were sent away in the garden, that was big D divorce. If you haven't read the book The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, it's what this is about. It's so good. If you've read it again, but it's been a long time, read it. Uh, if, if you haven't read it for a while, read it again. It's, it's great, but we've gone through The Great Divorce. I'm not the only pastor in Christ the King's staff that's been divorced. Everybody at CTK has been divorced in a much worse and a much more terrible sense than marital divorce. Every volunteer, every pastor, every camera person, every usher. 
We've all been separated. But here's the amazing news. Jesus wants divorced disciples. The kingdom is open and available to royally broken people. That's awesome. Christ the King has a motto. There is always a place for you. And this, has been, this motto has been ripped off from Christ, the King of Kings, who says that there's a place open in the kingdom of God to broken people. And there's a place at Christ the King for you. Because, first of all, the kingdom is open for royally broken pe- people. And Jesus used royally broken people as his ambassadors. He selected them to be his representatives. And there was a place for them among his very closest friends. And then there's a place for you here, Christ the King Church. The fact that I would be on this stage preaching this message is a major miracle of God. It's a huge demonstration of the grace and the power of Jesus to restore somebody who's broken. I wonder if, if you're here and you're serving right now, but, but you, you're the one who just slinked in the back and sat down and slinked out because of the brokenness in your life. I wonder how many stories are here represented tonight just totally broken people, but then the Lord worked through you and restored you, and now you're serving. It's a lot of those stories. So having the divorced pastor give a sermon on divorce is a picture of the kingdom. And my encouragement to you is just, would you just get healthy enough and then get in the game? There's a place for you. I want to just conclude by uh, addressing four different people that are, uh, different groups of people that are here tonight. I want to talk first to the the people who are pre-married, so maybe you're dating or you're thinking about it. I want you to invite Jesus the King into your marriage before you say, I do. I want you to love Jesus first and foremost, even more than your dating partner. That's going to set you up with this solid foundation. I want to talk to people, uh, secondly, who have strong marriages. And maybe this is your 10 or 20 or 30. And I want to give you encouragement that you're doing incredible. I'd like you to consider becoming marriage mentors to people that are, that are younger than you and new in marriage and and. Think about talking to Pastor Ryan Irvin. He's our family and marriage pastor here. And he's trying to connect uh, mentor couples to mentor younger couples. My parents are here this weekend. They're going to be at the service tomorrow. They're going to celebrate their 50th year of marriage on June 22nd. And how amazing is that? And there's some of you here, and that's you. and, And we need you. What you know There's younger couples who need that. Would you consider marriage mentoring? 
Third, I want to talk to the group of people who are struggling in their marriage, asking you to seek God's kingdom first in your life. Seek his rule and reign first. God's able to work powerfully when you seek his kingdom first. And and maybe maybe you're struggling and, and you're heading for divorce and maybe you know it and maybe you don't. Would you consider being mentored by couples who've been together for a long time and who've experienced the difficulties and made it through? So the last group of people I want to talk about is the ones who, like me, have been divorced. Your life is not over. Possibly the, the biggest pain in your life, but your life isn't over. Because the kingdom of God is open and available to broken people. The power of Jesus is greater than the pain of your wreckage. To you, I would say, get healthy enough. You don't have to be 100%, but get healthy enough. And then get back into serving Jesus as an ambassador of his kingdom. And those two things actually can happen at the same time as you getting healthy and you serving. In fact, that's maybe the best way of getting healthy. So get healthy enough and then get back in the game. Because Jesus wants you to be a disciple. One of his closest followers. Would you please pray with me in conclusion? Lord, I thank you that there's stories right here and right now, that there's, there's possibly a person who this week has been separating dishes, who's been separating bank accounts, who's been buying new houses, been moving into apartments, and right now they're going through divorce. Or would you heal and be present in the loneliness, in the empty house, Would you be with them and present? Lord, I'm praying for marriages that are teetering, that are heading for a cliff. Would you give them a wake-up call? Lord Jesus, your kingdom coming means you're restoring an entire created order. And if you can do that, you can restore a broken marriage. And I'm praying for those. Father, we love you and we want to be your servants. And Jesus, the ones that don't even know you and that are in the kingdom of darkness right now, would you tap them on the shoulder? Would you call them like a Matthew or a Levi or a Simon and say, come follow me and give them the courage to be a divorced disciple We just pray in Jesus' name, amen.